Well, a very pleasant good morning to each one of you again. Thank you for assembling together with us here to worship our great God, and especially on this uh, fifth Sunday to remember His uh, Son and His death upon the cross for each one of us. As we read through the Gospels, as we read through the book of Acts, we encounter quite a few references to centurions. For example, the Gospel writers Matthew and Luke tell us in their accounts of the life of Christ that a centurion, about a centurion rather, that had great faith in Jesus. While Acts records a conversion account of Cornelius, we remember him as a God-fearing centurion, as well as describing for us at the very end of that book a centurion named Julius, one who treated the Apostle Paul very well as he was making his way to Rome to appear before Caesar. Furthermore, to my knowledge, Scripture has nothing negative to say about Roman centurions and often portrays them in a very positive light. And so as we focus our minds upon the cross this morning, we want to consider a centurion that three of the gospel writers include in their accounts of the life of Christ. He is the centurion at the cross. We're going to be reading from these three texts this morning, and I have those here on the screen from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Just one verse each that each of those three gospel writers tell us about the centurion. Matthew 27 and verse 54, Matthew says to us there, Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. In the passage that our brother Don has already read for us this morning from Mark chapter 15 at verse 39, Mark describes it this way. He says, When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And then Luke's recording of this same reaction and statement from the centurion at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 23 and verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. I'm not going to bore you this morning with all the things that we could learn about centurions from the text or even from just history in general, but I do think it is helpful and will be helpful as we go on in this lesson this morning to just think about a couple of things that we know about Roman centurions. A Roman centurion was an officer, of course, in command of about a hundred men. I understand from at least my studies in the past that that number may have varied. It may have not always been exactly a hundred men, but he was an officer in command of about a hundred men in a Roman legion. Uh, centurions were a very vital part of the Roman army. They, as one writer has said, they kind of formed the backbone, if you will, of the Roman military. They performed a number of military duties, and we could go into uh, all of those that they would have taken on. But they were kind of uh, a do-it-all, if you will, uh, position or rank in the Roman military. And again, from what the New Testament says about them, centurions were men that were trustworthy. They were men of high character. They were men with a thorough understanding of authority. And the uh, ones that I just mentioned to you a couple of minutes ago from Matthew and Luke, and they're accounting earlier in their Gospels, 
they record a, 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 an example of a centurion, you might remember, whose, whose servant was very sick to the point of death. And that centurion understood all about authority, that he had men under him and he had men above him in rank. And so he said to Jesus, well, all you have to do is just say the word. You don't have to come to my house to heal the man. And he had enough faith in Jesus that he just believed that he would say that his servant was healed, he would be healed. And of course, Jesus spoke that and he was healed at that very moment. Very, very good men. Again, nothing I can find in Scripture has anything negative to say about those who are centurions. And so this is the kind of army officer, military officer, that we are thinking of this morning. This is the kind of man, this is the kind of character that he had. This is his background as he is standing here at the foot of the cross of Christ. What, what did the centurion see as he stood here at the cross? Well, though neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke tell us exactly how long this centurion had been at the foot of the cross, and none of those gospel writers tell us what he knew or didn't know about Jesus before this particular time. Surely evidence that this man witnessed while he was standing here at the foot of the cross was more than enough for him to say the words that he said, which we will think about here in just a few moments. And so I want you to just consider some things that the centurion surely saw and heard, not just while he was standing literally, physically at the foot of the cross, but even some things before Jesus got to the cross that he very well could have seen and heard. If this man were among the soldiers, or if he, as a centurion, were leading the soldiers that took Jesus into Pilate's palace, he would have seen, he would have heard, he might have even participated in the mocking, the beating, and the spitting that those soldiers gave to Jesus. If you're still there in the Gospels, in the book of Matthew, chapter 27, to turn back for just a moment to Matthew 27, beginning at verse 27. Matthew says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, into Pilate's palace, and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. Again, the text, Matthew doesn't tell us specifically here that this centurion that is at the cross was among this number, but I think it would be safe for us to assume that if he is there at the cross watching Jesus, guarding Jesus as it were, making sure that he does in fact die from this crucifixion, that he very well could have been in this number, that he was uh, among those number that were chosen, those soldiers out of the Roman military to lead Jesus to the cross, to crucify Him. And if He were in this number, He would have been involved in mocking Jesus and making fun of His claim to be the King of the Jews and taking His clothes off of Him, which certainly uh, would have, have been a humiliating thing. And to put this scarlet robe on Him to make fun of His claim, in essence, to be royalty or to be a king. He was there, if He was in this number, beating Jesus and spitting in our Lord's face. 
This centurion may have been among the soldiers that offered Jesus sour wine as Jesus was hanging there on the cross as they were mocking him. He may have been among the soldiers or at least overseeing the soldiers that had cast lots for Christ's garments. Or if not, if he were not literally involved in those events, he surely would have heard about all of these things. But if he were among that group, he was among the group who was helping to crucify Jesus Christ to nail him to the cross. In Luke's account, and we'll kind of be skipping around here mostly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke this morning. Uh, Just one, I think, passage or two from the Gospel of John. In Luke chapter 23, if you turn to Luke's accounting of the events of Calvary. In Luke 23, beginning at verse 36. Luke 23 at verse 36. Luke says to us, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Back again to Matthew chapter 27, this time picking up at verse 35. Matthew 27 and verse 35. Matthew says, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, a centurion certainly would have seen and heard the, not only the crucified criminals, the thieves that were on either side of Jesus on those crosses with Jesus in the middle, but he would have also heard the common people passing by the cross and also the Jewish leaders as they were mocking Jesus, as they were reviling him, as they were blaspheming the Son of God. It's continuing here in Matthew 27 and dropping down to verse 38. Matthew 27 and verse 38, Matthew continues, And he says to us, At that time two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. I don't know exactly how long this, these insults, this mocking, this reviling, this blaspheming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ went on. Maybe for the whole time that He was there on the cross, for hours as He was hanging there. But you just think about this man at the foot of the cross, this centurion, hearing all of this, seeing all of this, experiencing all of this suffering, persecution that Jesus was experiencing as He hung there on the cross. Later he would have also heard one of those robbers rebuke the other and ask Jesus to remember him. And he also would have heard Jesus's, I think, shocking reply to what that one criminal had to say to him. Back to the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 23. Luke 23 and picking up at verse 39, Luke says to us there that one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
See, this thief was, I think, coming to the same conclusion as he experienced all of the events of Calvary that day, as he saw Jesus hanging there on the cross, as he was watching how Jesus even reacted to all of this abuse that was being hurled his way, that he came to the same conclusion that, yes, you and I, the other criminal, we, we are here justly. We have done wrong. We have broken man's law and God's law. But this man has done nothing wrong. Verse 42 of Luke 23, And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And the shocking response it must have been to this centurion and those who were at the cross, when Jesus said to that criminal in verse 43, I truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. This man, I assume, was able to listen in on that conversation between Jesus and the thief there. But in addition to Jesus' words to the thief, the centurion surely heard the other words that Jesus spoke while he was on the cross. There are seven statements that the gospel writers record for us, seven things that Jesus said while he was dying there upon the cross. Matthew 27 and verse 46. Matthew 27 and verse 46 says, About the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, from Luke chapter 23, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He spoke these words. Jesus was saying, Luke says to us there in that verse, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then in verse 46, he spoke some more words after he had had that conversation with the thief on one side of him that Jesus Luke says in verse 46, crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. From the Gospel of John, as Jesus saw the beloved apostle, whom I assume is John and also his mother there at the cross, as we've already sung about this morning, he spoke some words in John chapter 19 at verse 26. John 19 at verse 26, when Jesus then saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. He had some words to say that were very personal as he spoke to the Apostle John, as he spoke to his mother, telling the Apostle John that now she is in your care, and telling his mother that now he is your son, he is family. I've preached some lessons in the past on the seven statements of Christ from the cross, and we could go into great detail about them. We could spend several lessons just on one or two of these. That's not our purpose this morning. I want you to get the overall picture that this centurion at the cross would have heard Jesus speaking these, these words, even as some of the gospel writers record about some of these statements, Jesus crying out with a loud voice. Jesus wasn't on the cross. I don't get a picture in my mind of him just whispering these words as he is dying here on the cross for our sins, to be our Savior and our Redeemer. He wants these words to be heard, just like he wanted all of his words throughout his earthly ministry to be heard. He is shouting these words. He is teaching still us something about himself and something about his purpose and something about his Father. And when Jesus had breathed his last, as we've already noticed in Mark 15 and verse 39, 
this Roman officer, this centurion, took notice that there was something in the way that Jesus breathed his last. There was something in the way as Jesus gave up his spirit that impressed this man and caused him to say what he said. And finally, after Jesus gave up his spirit, this centurion witnessed several extraordinary events. If you go back to the Gospel of Matthew, once again to chapter 27, and Matthew records some of that information for us. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 51, Matthew says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion, verse 54, and those who were keeping were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Can, can you imagine again all that this centurion man had experienced from the time, again, if he were in that number or leading that number of soldiers that we read about earlier in Matthew 27 as they were mocking him and spitting upon him and beating him to hearing all the things that his own people, the Jews, were saying about the one who claimed to be their Messiah to listening to this conversation between the one who claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ of God, and one who was obviously guilty of sin, a thief. To then Jesus crying out, verse 50 of Luke or Matthew 27, and yielding up his spirit, and then the veil of the temple being torn in two, and all of these dead people coming forth from the tombs being resurrected to life again, and then an earthquake... <laughs> And then on top of that, we haven't even talked about the, the sun being darkened. And just all of these events that were surrounding the death of this man. Though the centurion may have seen and heard even more than these things that we have mentioned this morning, what he witnessed while at the cross impacted him in a very, very powerful way that there should be no doubt about that in our minds as we think about the centurion this morning. And as we think about the impact of the cross on this man, I want us to see that in light of the words that he speaks here. While Luke records for us in his account, as we looked at and read earlier from Luke 23 and verse 47, that the centurion responded to all of these events, to all of these conversations, to all this evidence that was placed before his eyes by saying certainly this man was innocent or this man, Jesus, was righteous. Matthew and Mark both record the centurion as speaking these words that truly this man was the Son of God. What, what was this centurion confessing at this point? I don't know Greek, and I'll be the first to tell you, I don't know Greek. I, I have enough trouble with English sometimes. I'm not a Greek scholar by any means. But from what I understand, in, in the Greek, the definite article, the, does not appear here in the text. In other words, in this quotation, the words from the centurion here at the cross, truly this man was son of God. And so therefore, there are some people who are maybe critics of the Bible, critics of the text, 
that think that this centurion is only acknowledging here at this point that Jesus is a son of a God, or he is a son of God. After all, you can think about this man, even though he is a man of high character, he is a man that you could trust your life with. He, he is a man who understands authority and has proven himself in the position that he is in as a centurion in the Roman military. He is still a Roman. And the Romans believed in many gods, didn't they? Just like the Greeks believed in many gods. The Romans believed in many gods. But I would ask you this, if that is all that this centurion is saying, if he is just saying as he saw all of these things related to Jesus, if he is just saying, well, here is this man hanging on the cross who is a son of God, or here is this man hanging on the cross who is a son of a God, why would two gospel writers record that for us? I mean, for us today as we're reading and thinking about this account... What, what purpose would that serve for us? Would it help us to believe in Jesus as who He claimed to be? That He is the Messiah? That He is the Son of God? That He is deity, God in the flesh? No, I believe that after all this centurion had witnessed firsthand at the cross, that he at last came to the correct conclusion that this humble Jewish man who had suffered such an inhumane death, who had suffered greatly at the hands of his own people, who is hanging here upon a Roman cross, that he really is the one and only Son of God. One writer wrote about the centurion's response as the gospel writers record that for us by saying this, that the cross began to do its work at once. And I believe that's exactly right. We don't know anything again about this centurion's background religiously. We don't know whether he knew anything about Jesus or not. Maybe he had been, you know, uh, in some of those crowds that, that Jesus had spoken some parables or done some teaching or performed some miracles. We don't know whether he was or not. But what we do know is that he was now at the cross of Christ. He was standing there beholding this man who claimed to be the Son of God, knowing that he is an innocent man but knowing not only that, but coming to the conclusion that here is the Son of God and the cross began to do its work on Him at once. I believe that thought of that writer corresponds very beautifully with the words of Jesus Himself as He spoke in His life here upon earth about the impact that the cross would have upon all people who just simply take the time to look to truly look upon the cross of Christ. We're going to go to three passages quickly in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 3, first of all, Jesus had that conversation uh, with the teacher Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 14, beginning, uh, Jesus speaking here says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Jesus was telling this man as he was talking to him about the new birth, as he was talking to him about the fact that Nicodemus needed to be born again, and Nicodemus is thinking on a physical level and saying that's impossible to do. But Jesus was thinking spiritually about he needed to be reborn from the inside out. 
And unless he was born of the water and the Spirit, he could not enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus questions Jesus about that in verse 9. and says, how can these things be? And Jesus kind of rebukes him. Maybe it's a mild rebuke, but I see it as at least somewhat of a rebuke and saying, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know what I'm talking about. And here is his point when he comes to verses 14 and 15 that just as Moses, you might remember back in the Old Testament uh, when the people were being bitten by snakes that God instructed Moses to put that bronze serpent up on the pole and every Israelite who looked upon that bronze serpent would be healed. That's nothing really magical. I don't think about that serpent on the pole. But showing their faith in God and looking to that serpent and to being healed and Jesus is drawing Nicodemus's mind back to that time that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, talking about himself, be lifted up so that, verse 15, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Jesus was saying, this is the impact that the cross should have on you and it's intended to have on all people that when they look at me and see me, they're hanging on the cross when I'm lifted up from the earth. And they believe that I am who I claim to be, that in me, they will have eternal life. They will be healed from their sickness of sin. Over in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John, as Jesus was having a conversation with the Jews, they didn't believe in his claim that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father. They did not believe that he truly uh, was God and is God. And so Jesus made a statement to him in verse 24. He said, Truly I say to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, many versions insert that word he, but what Jesus is really saying, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Notice what he says down in verse 28. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Again, Jesus was saying, You, you need to wait till the cross. When you see me hanging there on the cross, when I am lifted up for all the world to see, at that particular moment in time, then you will know that I truly am God in the flesh then you will know that I am the I am. I am the Messiah that has been promised for ages. And then finally, a few chapters over in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, as Jesus speaks about himself here, uh, notice what he says, uh, beginning at, let's begin back at verse 30. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. Listen to verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Verse 33, John goes on to explain to us what he meant. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Again, you see in these three texts in, in John, over and over again, the same language, when I am lifted up. And he's speaking, John makes it clear for us again, he's not talking about going up into heaven to be with his father, ascending as we read about that in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 1. But he's talking here about being lifted up on the cross to die for humanity. And Jesus, I think, just ties all of those thoughts together that we have noticed here from John very beautifully for us when he says to us again in verse 32, If I am lifted up from the earth... 
I will draw all men to myself. It is the power of the cross that draws all men to see Jesus for who He truly is. The centurion's statement about Jesus should bring us to faith in Him. Or if we are not yet followers of Jesus Christ, the statements of the centurion ought to build our, bring us to faith in Him if we are Christians to build our faith in Him. Because what this man says, although it's a very few words, a very simple statement that truly this man was the Son of God, I believe it provides us significant evidence from a credible eyewitness. Again, remember who centurions were. You could trust what they had to say to you. They were people who understood authority. They were not people who were going to go rogue and go off on their own way from the Roman military. His statement provides us significant evidence from a credible, trustworthy eyewitness of the cross and one who presumably was not a believer before the events of that day. But he came to the conclusion, as we all should come to the conclusion, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He truly is the one and only Son of God. As we are about to remember our Lord's death at this time, let us keep the centurion's words in mind that truly this man was the Son of God. As we have thought this morning about the centurion at the cross, we may be thinking, well, that was easy for him because he was literally physically at the cross of Christ. But that has passed. And what about for me? Well, while it certainly is true that none of us here in this, this audience this morning were at the foot of the cross in the same way that this man was the day that Jesus Christ died, it is also true that through the inspired writings of men that have gone before us and through the eye of faith, that we can still, in a very real sense, see Jesus there as He was dying on the cross. And I hope that we have been able to see that these last few minutes as we have remembered His death and partaking of His supper. How often do we look at the cross? Again, in some of the passages that we read this morning from the Gospel of John, Jesus makes it very clear that the cross is what will draw all men to Him to come and to follow Him, to entrust our very lives, our very souls to Him. How often do you look at the cross? I'm telling you this morning, I don't look at it enough. But when we do look at the cross, what do we see? Nearly 2,000 years ago, a Roman centurion literally and physically saw the one and only Son of God. And so when you look at the cross, who do you see? Do you just see a good man, a great teacher? Or do you see the Christ, the Son of God? And if you do see Him as the Christ, the Son of God, and you yet have not committed yourself to Him, 
you have not yet responded to his invitation to come and to follow him, then we would take this time this morning to urge you to do that very thing. This is kind of our tradition, I guess, as Americans to, to offer an invitation at the end of our assembly. I don't think it's a bad tradition or a good tradition. It's just one that we have. But every time that we offer the invitation, we need to remember that it's not my invitation. It's not our invitation. It is really Jesus' invitation. And so the invitation is open to you this morning. If you have looked at the evidence that we find in the Bible, and you have come to the same conclusion that that man so long ago came to, that Jesus could not possibly be anyone else than the Messiah, the Christ of God, the one and only Son of God. Why not act upon that conclusion this morning? Why not act upon that faith that you have in Him. Come before this assembly expressing your desire to be a Christian, expressing your faith and confessing your faith that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God. Come this morning turning away from all of your sins and yourself and turn yourself completely and fully to Him. And then be buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and put that old man to death and rise to walk in newness of life. If you need to do that very thing at this time, we would encourage you to come to the front. Let your wishes be made known as we stand and as we sing.